chapter 1. Gospel of John in chapter 1, we are continuing our new exploration through this gospel. We began, of course, last week looking at the first three verses of this gospel, and we saw as well that in the first 18 verses we have, as it were, a kind of introduction to the entire gospel. A lot of the themes that are going to be worked out in the gospel are found in these first 18 verses. And so, John is setting the scene for us, um, and, he's, and he's explaining where we're about to go in the Gospel, and who it is that we are about to see. So, in the first three verses that we saw last week, we, we saw him speaking of the Word, namely Jesus. He describes Him as the Word, and he wanted to make the point especially clear that this Jesus, who is the Word of God, has eternally and always been the Word of God. He has always been the Son of God, and He is the very One through whom all things have been created. The reason you have breath, the reason reason I have breath, the reason there are living things in this world is because Jesus made them. And he wants to begin there, and he wants to set that scene, because as we move through the Gospel of John and we're introduced to Jesus as He is on the earth, he wants us to understand this is no mere man. He is not just any prophet, and he is not just like any king who has come before. This is God in the flesh. So that was verses... 1 to 3, and I want to pick up where we left off last week, uh, beginning in verse 4, and I want to read to verse 9. Now, for most of your Bibles, you're going to have a little bit different divisions than verses 4 to 9. I think a new paragraph starts at verse 6, and then also verse 9. I want to look at verses 4 through 9, though, because in in these verses, you've got this, this theme, this idea of light and life that runs all the way through it. And so he's working with particular ideas here, and that's what I want to explore with you this morning, is what what this means to us. And so I want to begin in verse 4, and then read down to verse 9. John says there, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Would you pray with me? Father, we, your people, need above all 
life. We live in a world that has known from the fall of Adam and Eve nothing but death. From the very beginning, after they fell into sin and they had children, their own children became murderers. And this pattern has been working itself out in and through the world in all nations ever since. So Lord, above all, we need life. And Your Word teaches us that it is found in Christ. That He has become and is the revelation of God to us. And in that revelation, in knowing and seeing Jesus, we can have life. And so Father, I pray this morning that as we look at Your Word and we see what Your inspired Apostle John says about Christ, Father, I pray that Your Word would make us live. That we who know You now would have the power in and through Christ and by the Spirit to continue to wage war against the indwelling sin that remains within us so that we might persevere to the end and behold the glory of Christ and be transformed into His very image. And Lord, for those who may be in here who do not know You, who do not have life in them, Lord, I pray that Christ would be the light of God to them this morning. You have, in Your grace, made Your light shine in our hearts. And so, Father, I pray that that miracle would be true for them. Lord, illuminate Your Word for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there is a fairly popular TV show called Undercover Boss. Some of you may be familiar with it, others perhaps not. It's a show about what the title says it's about. It's about a CEO of a large company who goes undercover in that company to see how the operations in that company are working. This is the very premise of the show. It is that a CEO wants to see at the ground level how his employees experience working for his or her company. They want to know what the entry-level positions are like. They want to know what it's like being someone who has worked for this particular company for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, 25 years. How are we treating our people? How is this company operating? And so rather than just getting the employees to fill out a basic survey answering some of these questions, because we all know that would not make for good TV, they invented the idea of undercover boss. And the boss goes to see how things are taking place. The boss, the CEO, is, is given a makeover to help him with this disguise so that no one can recognize him. And, and so throughout the show, with this 
disguise, employees are working right alongside the CEO, and the employees have no clue that it is the CEO. And I would venture to say that even if the CEO was not wearing makeup, they probably wouldn't know who the CEO was. I've, I've worked in retail. I'm sure many of you have worked for and are working for different companies. And probably most people could not say who the CEO of the given company is, much less describe what he or she looks like. But it adds to the show to give them some makeup. Nevertheless, though the employees have been working with the CEO for about a week through this show... At the end, the employees are then brought into a room or an office where they think they're about to give a report on how well their new fellow employee did throughout the week. But when they walk into this office, they meet someone who at first glance seems to be familiar to them. They can't exactly pinpoint why it is there is this familiarity, but they see someone in the room who is familiar. They can't initially figure it out, but eventually the person they meet reveals that they are actually the CEO of the company. And they've been working undercover with these employees for the past week. And so naturally, when the employees hear this news, they are shocked. Uh, Some of them have not been the best employees, and it becomes a surprise to them. Some of them, uh, which it's just the initial shock of, of learning that this person you were working with is actually your boss. They can't believe it. They can't believe that this person, who oftentimes was not a very good worker themselves, was the CEO. And they, these employees, perhaps would have never known that it was the CEO unless that revelation of information was given to them at the end. I say all that to say this is really how we come to know anyone. Unless we receive some kind of revelation, some kind of pertinent information, We can be standing right next to someone or seeing someone of some importance and we can be completely unaware of who it is we are by. For example, Ken, our brother Ken, has a cousin who lives in the Bowling Green area. Ken has told me about this cousin. They eat together pretty regularly. But I've never met his cousin. Before. I've never seen his cousin before. This week, I could drive down to the IGA store, and I could get into the checkout line and be standing right next to Ken's cousin, and I would never know that it was his cousin. We could strike up a conversation. I could tell him who I was and where I was from. It would be Ken's cousin in flesh and blood, but unless the information that I need was given to me, I would not know who that person was. I'd be blind to that information. And therefore, I would be blind to some important revelation. 
Now, our own experience teaches us that this is the norm for knowing anyone. We have to have revelation. We cannot simply see a person's face and automatically be zapped with the knowledge of who they are. We have to have some kind of revelation, some kind of credible information given to us for us to truly know a person. Now, our experience teaches us that this is the norm. But when it comes to knowing God, for some reason, the cultural impulse, our impulse from birth, is to think that it's different with God. Knowing God personally falls into a different category for some reason. We don't need revelation to know God. We have our feelings. We have our intuitions. We have some inner sense of the divine. We have our assumptions. We have our imaginations. We have our confident opinions that are often expressed in statements like, to, to me, God is like this. To me, God is love. To me, God is forgiving. We have these opinions that are grounded solely in our preconceived ideas of who we think God should be. And that, for many, is often sufficient. For some reason, though some kind of revelation is required for us to know another person, many believe that it is not regarding the knowledge of God. On the opposite end of the spectrum, you have the atheist belief. The atheist probably grasped in some measure the fact that revelation is required to know God. They just don't believe that the revelation has been given. In fact, this is often one of their objections to a belief in God. If God exists, some might say, then He would show Himself. There would be a revelation of God. There would be a voice from heaven communicating to us that God is real. There would be thunder and lightning. There would be some kind of glory that is revealed to everyone at some time. This is, for some at least, an objection. And they argue that because we cannot see God, He has not been revealed to us, God does not exist. Well, John, in his Gospel, contradicts both of these ways of thinking. John believes and teaches very plainly, not only that revelation is necessary to know God, but that this revelation has been given to the world in the person of Jesus. Jesus is the revelation of God to us. In fact, in John's first letter, 1 John, he goes so far as to say that if a person 
doesn't believe that God has revealed Himself to the world in His Son, that person doesn't know God. And even more, that person makes God a liar. It's giving Him an accusation. 1 John 5.10 says this, Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. Why? Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning His Son. God has given revelation. He has given a witness to His existence, to His power, to His will, to His plans, and it has been given in Jesus. And to deny that is to make Him a liar. The entire Christian religion and any of our Christian experience with God is grounded in the fact of revelation. And what John wants us to see in his gospel is that in Jesus, the Son of God, God has revealed Himself to the world. But he wants us to see even more than that. Even more than the fact of revelation. As we saw last week, the purpose of John's gospel stated at the end of chapter 20 is that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. John not only wants us to see that revelation has been given in Jesus, but that embracing this revelation gives us life. As we make our way through verses 4 to 9 in this introductory portion of his gospel, the central point that John is making here in this passage, and what I want to unpack a little more this morning, is simply this, this principle. That light brings life. Light brings life. Now, with this point, I'm just using John's language of light and life. But what it means simply is that the revelation of Jesus, which is what John means when he speaks of the light, Jesus being revealed, Jesus shining in the world, the revelation of that light brings life to the world. So light brings life. This, this is a truth. This is a truth that even nature teaches us and bears witness to. Most living creatures that we know of, unless they are living at the bottom of the ocean, need light to live. If you plant a garden, it needs light to live. It needs light to produce fruit. And it's the same idea spiritually. We need light in order to have eternal life. In order to bear fruit. In order to live according to the way that we were designed to live. And John is saying... 
that that light is shining for us in the revelation of Jesus. And by it, by Jesus, we live. He begins this point in verses 4 and 5 by teaching us that the light of revelation is necessary for life. It is the necessary component we need for life. Look at verse 4 with me again. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Verse 4 is, of course, continuing the thought of verses 1 to 3. There He spoke of Jesus being the Word. And as the Word of God, He is the unique messenger of God to creatures. He is Himself divine. And it is through Him, John says, that all things were made. Now John turns to another subject about the Word of God, about Jesus, and says, in Him was life. Life here refers to eternal life. Everlasting life. That is what it means in the vast majority of places in John's writings. Especially with reference to Jesus. So John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Life and eternal life, they're the same thing. They're referring to the same thing. John 5.24, Jesus says there, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My Word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. John 6.51, again, Jesus says there, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Jesus is the one through whom life comes. And that life is eternal. And here in John 1.4, therefore, when it says, in Him was life, it means that this eternal life that we need and desire, this escape from the present realities of our existence where death and decay is in our faces every day, this escape and this freedom is found in Christ. But John adds as well in verse 4, and the life, that eternal life I just mentioned, the eternal life was the light of men. The life was the light of men. What what does he mean when he says that? What is he saying here? The eternal life, which is in Christ, found in Christ, was the light of men. What, What does this mean? There have been many, many interpretations throughout the centuries, about exactly what John is trying to communicate here. About 50 to 100 years after the apostles died, a heretical sect of Christians arose that became known as the Gnostic Christians. 
you've ever heard of the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Peter, this is something you'll probably very frequently hear if you ever watch a documentary on early Christianity on the History Channel. But if you've ever heard of these writings, these were the writings that later Gnostic Christians wrote in order to support their belief system. And among those beliefs was the idea that the Gnostics had access to secret knowledge that other Christians did not have. It elevated them to a, to a position of superiority above others. There was something unique and special about them. There was a spark of divinity that was naturally within them and not in others, and that gave them privileged access to secret revelations of God. And that is what they believed the light of men was. It was a reference to the special light that was within them. John Calvin, 1,500 years later, gave a very popular interpretation that is still uh, argued for today. He said that the light of men referred to that which separates man from animal. It refers to our light of understanding, our ability to to comprehend and to be self-aware and to gain more knowledge. Our understanding is what elevates us above animals, and that, he argued, was the light of men that John speaks of here. But if we read through the rest of the Gospel of John, we find that John has a very consistent use of the word light. Very much like he has a very consistent use of the word life. Light, like the designation the Word in verses 1 to 3, describes a person, Jesus. And it brings out the truth that He is a revelation to us in the darkness of this world, specifically to who God is. If you see Jesus, you see light. If you have Jesus, you have light. And if you see the light in Christ, you see God. In several verses of this Gospel, Jesus says of Himself, I am the light of the world. So the light in John's mind is obviously a person. But where I think both the idea of the light being the person of Jesus as well as the idea of the light being revelation to us comes out best is in John chapter 12, verses 45 and 46. There, in that passage, Jesus says this, Whoever sees Me, sees Him who sent Me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in Me may not remain in darkness. If you see Me, He says, if you see the Son, you see 
God. I am the revelation of God. And if God is revealed to you through me and you believe in me, you are no longer in the darkness. You are now in the light. So when we come back to John chapter 1 and verse 4, the light of men is a description of the revelation of the Son of God to men. It is a light for men, you could probably put it. And that's probably a a fuller way to put it. It describes the revelation of the Son of God to mankind. So then, back to our original question, what does John mean when he says the life, the eternal life, was the light of men. He is saying that eternal life is the revelation of the Son of God. In other words, to live truly and forever, to have eternal life, is to see and to behold and to know and to savor Christ. And by knowing Christ, we know God. To see Jesus spiritually or physically is to have life. That is eternal life. Eternal life, friends, is not just some vague hope of seeing aunts and uncles or or long-lost relatives that we've wanted to see for so long after we Die. It is, it is not a, a picture of us forever and ever sitting on the clouds of heaven playing harps. Eternal life is seeing Jesus for who He really is. Now in this life we see Him dimly as in a mirror. Then we will see Him fully. And in that knowledge, in that sight, we will have life. It is the seeing of Christ in that fullness. The hope that we have to see Him in His fullness that finally transforms us completely into what we were made to be. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, when Christ is revealed, when the clouds of heaven are split in two and He comes riding into this world on the clouds of heaven, on His horse, when He appears, John says, we shall be like Him. Why? Because we shall see Him as He is. It will be, and even is now, the light of revelation that transforms us and purifies us and frees us from sin. Jesus Himself makes this connection for us in John chapter 12, verse 36 speaking to a large crowd in that passage, He charges them, while you have the light, 
Believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Light, when it shines in darkness, makes the darkness light. All darkness is, right, is the absence of light. So when it shines, the darkness becomes the very opposite of what it was before. And this is what John points out in verse 5 when he gives this general statement. He says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Light overcomes darkness and transforms it into light itself. And so it is the very same when Jesus shines into the heart of men. That is what He does when He saves them. That is what He does when He has or will save anyone in this sanctuary. He simply says to them, let there be light. And the darkness is no more. And the darkness that separated them from God is overcome by the word of His command and the introduction of eternal light and life in a person's heart. Friends, if you find yourself in this situation this morning, if if you cannot say of yourself, Christ has shown Himself to me, Through His very Word, He has revealed the light of His glory. And I have seen it. I have beheld it. I have savored it. He has been revealed to me chiefly through the Word He has given and inspired by His Spirit. If you cannot say that, say that you know Christ. Note, note well that the Bible and that John here is saying it is necessary, necessary for you to have eternal life. And this necessary revelation is not something that you can show yourself. It is not something that you can simply turn on when you feel like it. You have to have Jesus give it to you. And so what you have to do is recognize that in your current state, if you don't know Christ, you have to recognize you are the same as if you were a man lost in the pitch black of a cave. You're not going to be able to produce your own light. You need some kind of rescue. You need light to guide you out of the darkness. And the only thing you can do is to stop trying to climb out of the cave simply by the power of your own will and ingenuity and cry out to the Lord for help and He will hear you and He will give a command, let there be light and the cave will become the place of glory. That's what Jesus does by His power for sinners. Now as John continues, verses 6-8 to are given as a 
confirmation of sorts of the trustworthiness of this revelation. It's a confirmation of the trustworthiness of Jesus being the true light and revelation of God. All revelation, all revelation has to be confirmed. It has to have witnesses. Those, those witnesses don't necessarily have to be human witnesses. They could be signs and miracles and, and wonders. But regardless, revelation requires confirmation. That, that is the principle that is set forth in Scripture. In the Old Testament, if a prophet claimed to be speaking on behalf of God, that claim had to be tested. It was not to be taken simply at face value. No matter how persuasive it might have sounded. And the way it was tested for the Old Testament prophets was simply by two means. Number one, did what the prophets say actually come true? And number two, did what the prophecy, the prophets say accord with the Word of God? Because sometimes there could be a false prophet who would give true revelation, who would also seek to lead the Israelites away from worshiping God. If you think of Balaam, for example, in the book of Numbers. Balaam spoke true words of God. Balaam was given by God true words to be spoken, not only to the Israelites, but to the king who was seeking to kill them. He spoke true words, but nevertheless, Balaam's intentions was to lead the people of God, astray to lead them into idolatry. So both of these criteria had to be present in order to confirm the truthfulness of the revelation that was given. If it did not have these, then the prophet was false. All revelation requires confirmation. We see this as well in Jesus' own ministry. Jesus' own ministry was not without confirmation. The signs and miracles He performed bore witness that He was who He was claiming to be. He was claiming to be the Son of God. He was claiming to have all authority in creation. He was claiming that on the very day that was supposed to be a day of rest for the Israelites, the Sabbath day, We know, the Israelites knew, that God doesn't stop working on that day. And Jesus Himself did not stop working on that day. He healed on that day. And so, saying all of these things and demonstrating who He was to the people needed confirmation and it was confirmed by signs and wonders. And ultimately, it was confirmed by the resurrection of Christ. When God raised Him from the dead, it was as if God was saying, everything Jesus said about Himself and about who I am was true. Evidence, exhibit A, He's not dead anymore. All revelation has confirmation. 
Which is why if someone comes to you and tells you that they have received some private prophetic word from the Lord, you should be extremely cautious. Because the pattern of Scripture is that there should be something to confirm it. But not only did Jesus have signs and miracles that confirmed who He was, He also had a very well-known prophet who bore witness to the Israelites that He was the Son of God. This is John the Baptist. John the Baptist was one who was recognized by the Israelites as being a true prophet. Even the Pharisees were coming to Him to be baptized. And this is the very reason why John includes this section here in verses 6-8. to He is telling us that Jesus is the light that gives us life. He is the revelation of God. And the confirming evidence of that revelation is the testimony that John the Baptist bore witness to. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through Him. He was not the light, but He came to bear witness about the light. This is very important for the Apostle John to give us this information here Because it's recognized that John the Baptist was a prophet of God who was foretold by the Old Testament prophets to have come. Several passages of Scripture, Isaiah being one that is very noteworthy, spoke of one who would come preparing the way of the Lord in the wilderness. And this was none other than John the Baptist. So for Jesus to have this prophet Bear witness to who He was is saying a lot about the truthfulness of who He is. Finally, verse 9, John not only tells us that this Jesus, who is the eternal Word of God, who is the Creator of all things, the possessor of eternal life and the light Revelation, he not only tells us that this Jesus was coming into the world, but he purposely adds some really good news about this person. He has made the point that light being revelation gives life. He has made the point that receiving eternal life requires seeing Jesus for who He really is. He has made the point that John the Baptist serves as a confirmation of who Jesus really is as the light of revelation to us. But now he says in verse 9 that the true light, Jesus, gives light to everyone. He gives it. Now this is not an affirmation of universalism. John is not saying that every single individual on the planet to have ever lived, has been given light. To be given light is to be given eternal life. And we know from the rest of the Gospel and the rest of the Bible that not everyone has eternal life. There are sons of light and there are sons of darkness. There are those who are saved. There are those who are judged. 
There are those who believe. There are those who don't believe. There are those who follow Jesus. And there are those who crucify Him. There is a distinction within John's own Gospel. What John is saying here is that light has been given to all in the sense of all kinds, all nations, all ethnicities, all tribes, all social statuses. Light in the person of Jesus has been given not just to the Jews, but to the Samaritans and the Romans and the Greeks. Light has been given not just to the physically healthy, but to the blind and to the lame. It has not been given just to the rich and to the prominent, but to the poor, the outcast of society. And this point, my friends, is why I call this good news. God does not make distinctions like men do. He does not care if you are rich, if you are poor, if you are black, if you are white. He doesn't care if you are educated or if you are uneducated. He is not concerned with whether or not you have grown up in a religious environment or not when it comes to light being given to people. His call to embrace His Son as the giver of life is a call that is extended to all without distinction. And John in his Gospel wants us to be swept up in this very truth as he himself was. He wants us to see in Christ our very God and source of life and to see in Him that He gives life freely to all who would but simply ask for it. You have to understand this was very revolutionary for John, a Jew. The Jews are the people of God. The Jews are the chosen race. The Jews are the ones with the covenants and the promises and the prophets. And now with the coming of Jesus, all of the promises that were given to the Jews in the Old Testament, God through Jesus is saying is being extended to all. The promise of land. Land that is flowing with milk and honey. Land that is always bearing fruit. Land in which God Himself dwells is no longer confined to one little region of the world. It's the entire globe that God is saying, this is My dominion. And every nation and tribe that is a part of it is now given the promise through Jesus that if you but believe, if you simply come into the light, you yourself will dwell in the presence of this great King forever. Revolutionary for a Jew. And oh, what sweet words it is to us as Gentiles. 
We are a people who for most of the world's history were left in utter darkness. And now because of Christ and His entrance into the world and His cross and His resurrection, we ourselves can have the hope of eternal life and a world without end. Friends, if that is your hope, rejoice in it. If it is not, do not let this day go by without coming to the light. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise You because You have made Yourself known. You have revealed to the world what kind of God You are. A God of power. A God of justice. A God who keeps all of His words. God of grace who loves sinners and who is willing to send His Son to shed blood for His enemies. Father, we rejoice in these truths. And we pray, Lord, that every day, every morning, every evening, every afternoon, this be the meditation of our hearts. That no matter what difficulties or darkness may arise in our lives, we are not a people lost in a dark cave. We are a people with a path of righteousness that we are guided on by the light of the Son of God. Father, we thank You for these truths and we thank You for the Spirit that You give us that sanctifies us and makes us into children of light. And I pray, Father, that not only would we, Your people, embrace and love these truths, but if there is one who is not Your people here today, they would be made into a son of light. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand.